Hey, welcome to episode 10 of Future Frenzy. I'm your host, Sven Patzer, and today we have with us Michael Frendo. He is an incredible uh, tech guru with years of experience, uh, and we're really excited to have him on the pod. Um, so, Michael, uh, to start off, uh, would you mind giving us a little more information about your tech background? So my tech background started in telecom. Uh, I spent seven seven years at Nortel, uh, a, a company that was once you know one of the world leaders, um, working really to bring data into the voice business, which was uh, trying to bring frame relay into telephone switches, which in retrospect seems like a really silly thing to do. Um, and so we spent a few years doing that, realized it was a bad idea, and um, decided to build a frame relay product, actually ATM frame relay multimedia product. Which, which allowed us to bring voice and data and other things together. I then spent 10 years at Cisco. Uh, I was got there at a very interesting time, uh, 1995, when Cisco was just sort of starting to expand beyond routing and do other things. They just bought a couple of switching companies and doing, were doing other things. Um, and I was very fortunate there to find a role in what became Cisco's Advanced Technology Center, which is where we really focused on disruptive technologies that we could use to essentially move uh, more revenue away from sort of traditional telecom into into the uh, into what became the internet. I then uh, I spent about 10 years there, five years in tech, the tech center, five years in uh, in the unified communications voice technology group. Um, I spent a couple of years in uh, fiber channel switching, which is you know large storage area networking. Um, a couple of years in security uh, where I ran security business for uh, for Juniper. Uh, one of their security business units where we created a very large uh, security product for the mobile space that uh, you know went to a very actually very significant market share because mobile was a bit different in that data over mobile was all about um, a lot of sessions at low bandwidth and so you know most of the security products were built for a small number of sessions with large bandwidth and so going after that market with a really a, a new category of product uh, was pretty key uh, I spent a couple more years in unified communications at uh, Avaya and then went on uh, to do something very different, which was disruptive as well, which was a uh, long haul optical where we were moving from moving, you know, um, uh, you know, a few hundred gigabits per second over fiber to eight terabits to 16 terabits to, you know, just huge amounts of bandwidth, um, all of which, you know, enabled a whole bunch of other new things to happen. And then I went back to UC again and spent four four years running engineering for Polycom, where we built uh, we built some very innovative um, and disruptive uh, conferencing technologies. Uh, one of which was a three hundred and sixty degree uh, video conferencing system that uh, that was very you know sort of brought a very natural you know if you meet around a table you're kind of meeting around a table. So the idea of putting the video conferencing in the middle of a meeting. Where you could see the people on the other side, and where it could pick out who was speaking and focus on them, was uh, was a pretty pretty tech. And we did we did a few other neat things there. So I I'm sorry to cut you off, but would you mind um, uh, it going a little more into detail about this uh, 360 video conferencing technology? Because I I find it incredibly interesting. Sure. So if you look at traditional video conferencing, it was a camera at the front of the room and a screen at the front of the room and, and a, you know, a bunch of people in a room, um, fairly low resolution to start with and then growing over that over time, um, eventually adding a second screen 
you know, for content. So we had a, con a screen for people and a screen for content. But, you know, people were on the screen and people who were far away were small and you really couldn't read much body language in a, um, on, or maybe 50 inch screens, which, you know, eventually became bigger. Uh, what we really focused on was the idea that a meeting was more people sitting around a table. And so uh, we created this 360 degree conferencing system that had four screens. Uh, so whatever side of the table on you, you could see the people at the other end. And the camera was intelligent enough that when someone was speaking for people at the other end, it would focus on that person. It would actually find the person that was speaking, frame the person that was speaking. So if you're at the other end of that meeting, that's who was highlighted, which is very much like a natural conference, right? Somebody talks, you look at them, right? And you're looking at that person speak and you're you're getting a, a more a closer view of them. You're, you're getting a chance to, to read the body language, which, you know, we all say 80% of communication is nonverbal, right? And so you get, you get a very, a very natural experience. And it was, it was, it was, um, uh, very, you know, pretty advanced technology at the time, you're starting to see a lot more stuff like that, like the owl camera, which is a 360 degree camera, uh, you know, not combined with the screens, but we, you know, we, we really took it that step further and we had a very significant customer in NATO, but we sold 28 systems to 28 countries and uh, they really found it to be a very natural way of, of meeting, uh, having meetings that way. That's incredible. It, it's, it seems as though your whole life's work has just been uh, helping make the world a more innovative place. Uh. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess my whole life, I, it's interesting because as a grad student, I was in computer vision, which was not about, really not about communication, but about analyzing pictures and videos and doing things with, like that. Um, when I moved into the telecom space, which is really all about connecting people, right? It's about people talking to people, whether it's audio or video or some combination, sharing of content. That's really become, you know, what really became my career. And even when you look at moving all the way down to like layer one optical, right? It's still about when you when you can increase the bandwidth that's available, you can you can, you know really rich in the experience, you know, make the experience much richer from the multimedia perspective when people want to communicate. So bandwidth, it's just, it's a, just a key building block for, for doing that as well. So I, I guess you could say that, yeah, I, I have been fortunate in many ways to be in the right place at the right time with tech moving in the right, at the right speed to take advantage of it. Um, but tell, you know, tell, it's about communications between people, connecting people has always been kind of the, the thing that, you know, kind of gets my juices flowing. Yeah, and and when you're in that space, how do you balance technical expertise with uh, business strategy when you uh, oversee product development like that? Especially when you're talking about uh, products that are used uh, across the globe. I've always uh, looked at products sort of along three dimensions that I think are important. Right, one is you want to intersect the technology you have to recognize that technology is always moving forward. So if you limit yourself to what's possible today, you're gonna miss out, right? You're gonna build something that's obsolete by the time you ship it. So you wanna intersect the technology, right? You wanna be on that forefront, right? Even in my earliest, earliest days at, at uh, Nortel, we were building, you know, state-of-the-art, the latest technology ASICs because we wanted to put as much tech as we could, take advantage of the tech to the extent that we could. And so you, you want to look at that trajectory of technology. And there's plenty of those trajectories. You got to assume, you know, that that bandwidth is going to increase. You have to look at how compute capability is going to increase. You have to look at 
um, uh, memory and it becoming faster and what you can do with that. You, you look at those dimensions of tech and, and, and that's, that's the hardware dimensions. You look at the software dimensions of tech as well, right? The, the, the advances in machine learning, which are leading you know, all of these uh, innovations in AI or, or towards AI, I'm a little hesitant to call it AI just yet, but but you look at those advancements and you, you look at what's possible. Now, certainly hardware, software, all that stuff's enabled that, but there's a lot of innovation in the software capabilities as well. So that's, that's dimension one. D dimension two is you want to look forward to solving a real problem. I mean, in the end, it's no fun to build a product if no one's going to buy it, right? There's yeah. tons of cool stuff out there. I mean, the dot-com bubble, I've, I've lived through a few bursts of bubbles, right? Dot-com being one of them. Um, you know, people were just building stuff because it was cool. But, you know, you ask them, what's the business plan? How are you going to monetize it? There wasn't necessarily an answer. And so oh, just building something for fun is fun, but, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. And so you want to look at... Uh, for, you know, look at the problems that people are having today. Look at the real problems that you want to solve, right? I mean, if you look at my current startup journey, we're, we're, we are very focused on solving the problem of identity and security and privacy because those things are becoming more and more important. So, so that's the second piece is, you know, you want to solve, what's the problem you can solve that has real value? It has to have real value or, or there's no point really doing it. Um, and then the third piece is, do you have the people and the tech, you know, people and the smarts and the brain power and the capabilities technically from the people perspective to actually, right? In the end, I mean, do do I need, you know, fifty people to build something, five people to build something, fifty thousand people to build something? I mean, think you know, if you think about Tesla, right? <laughs> there was a lot of naysayers about Tesla, but Elon knew that if he was going to build. He needed to build at least 100,000 cars a year, going to a million cars a year. And he took in many, many billions of dollars of investment because that's what he needed to build a car company, right? You couldn't do it with five people. Half Instagram was built with eight people in a year, right? And and and, and our friends at, uh, you know, our friends paid a billion dollars for that, right? I mean, Facebook paid a billion dollars for people who spent about a year, it might've been a bit longer, you know, eight people, maybe a few contractors. That's all it took. It was disruptive. It was huge. It made a big influence. And but they they knew they had what they needed to do that. WhatsApp's another example. It wasn't a huge team that built WhatsApp, right? Yet, you know, what billion people use it now or something like that. So it's in it's it's in the hundreds of millions for sure. I think it may be over a billion, right? Same thing. It, to get it started, it it didn't you didn't need hundreds of people necessarily. And the same is true for a lot of tech. But that key third dimension is what do I need to actually build this, right? If I want to build something like, um, I've got a good friend who's, who's building uh, uh, augmented reality in a contact lens, okay? What? <laughs> yes, augmented, you know, and, and he's built prototypes and, and you know, he, he may get to the point, but that's, that's, a, few, that's, that's a few hundred million dollars, right? That's, that's, you're not going to build that with 10 people and $3 million, right? And so that third dimension of, of what does it take to do it? And can I get what I need to do it? is as important as the other two. It's as important as the technology and it's as important as the problem, real problem that you're focusing on solving. So much insight to unpack there. Th thank you for that. So uh, to move on, uh, you've worked with global teams in numerous environments, uh, 
obviously, as, as alluded to in, in this earlier conversation, could you discuss some of the challenges that you've had uh, when leading uh, teams all across the world and, uh, you know, trying to accomplish objectives uh, with lots of people in different places? I, it's a, it's a that's a great question and and I, I like by the by the way that you said leading okay because it's not about managing it really is about leading at least in the way that I like to work and and I think uh, we we all look at the global you know enterprise and the flattening of the earth as somebody spoke you know the internet flattening the earth and allowing work to be to happen all over the world and that certainly is uh, has been an accelerator right the fact that it's uh, we've got hundreds of thousands, millions probably of, of uh, IT R&D folks in the US, but there's also millions in other countries and expertise comes from everywhere. Uh, but there are real challenges, right? I mean, pe people think, well, you know, I can get somebody in, you know, in, in, uh, in Asia for a quarter of the cost. Um, let's just hire a bunch of people Asian and add them to the project. It's not that simple, right? I mean, when you start talking about having a 13 hour time difference, right? It's, it's not like, you know, everybody's sitting down to work together on something uh, at the same time. 13-hour time difference makes a difference. And I've seen companies handle that in different ways. I've seen companies handle it by saying, you know what? They're just going to have to time shift and work when we work. We, we'll work during the day and they'll work in the middle of the night. You're not necessarily going to get the best people that way. <laughs> you know? uh, so that's, that's one problem with it. It's also not really fair, right? I mean, you, you know, people... Our circadian cycles are important, right? I mean, people need to sleep at night. It, it, it's, it's important. So I think one of the things you look at when you look at a global organization is how can you create local ownership and local empowerment for people to get stuff done within the time zone and the, and the, and the skill set that they have, right? And, and I, I can give you, a, I'll give you a great example of this in that you know, one of the companies I work for, and I, I won't name them because it's just not entirely a positive story. Um, but one of the companies I worked for, when I met with the, when I took over the engineering team, you know, they were the product line. The product line was uh, a little dated, and uh, sales weren't going well, and their innovation pipeline was a little weak. Um, and they had a they had a pretty large team um, in the U.S. Uh, actually, several places in the U.S. Just pretty spread out. They had folks in New Jersey, and folks in California, and folks in Colorado, and I think some folks say it was in, I think it might've been uh, Washington. So it was pretty spread out. I mean, I had a pretty spread out team here. Um, and then they had, a, they had, they had another uh, fairly big team in Bangalore in, in India. And when I, I met with the team here, uh, their first thing, I mean, like the first 20 words were get rid of the team in India. And, and I'm like, okay, um, why? Well, they're not productive. They can't get the work done. Um, you know, there's no, there's no point. I, I, we know that they cost us less, but they're less productive, and so there's no point in having them. And and so, I thought, well, um, the next thing I need to do is I need to take get in a plane and fly for 24 hours and go to the see the team in India because 200 people. I mean, we're not talking about oh, 10 wow. guys here. We're talking about 200 people, right? Um, it's it is a, it's a it's it's it was the whole enterprise. Our, it was our second largest site in the world. Uh, out of a, I guess we had about twelve hundred engineers altogether, something in the neighborhood. So this is, but this is a big site. So I went there, and you know they was they greeted me very nicely, you know, and 
had a couple of nice meetings and I sat down with the management team there and I said, okay, so tell me why the team in the US thinks you guys are useless. I mean, just tell me why, I wanna know, right? And, and, and because that's what they think. They think you're not very productive. They don't, they don't think you can, you know, you're fixing issues. They don't think you're producing much in the way of, of uh, uh, actual product capability. And they said to me, well, um, I, I, we think part of the problem is that we just don't have a lot of test gear. So when we need to create something and test it, we actually have to test it in the lab in, in the US. Oh. And, you know, we're, we can take advantage of the fact that the lab in the US isn't that busy at night when we're working during the day, but we can't reset stuff. You know, there's a huge, there's a huge delay. I mean, there's a lot of latency. It makes us really, you know, it makes us really slow. And when we have a problem, it's very hard to actually debug it because the lab is, you know, uh, many thousands of miles away. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's fair. Um, what else is, is holding you back? Well, they give us all these little tasks to do, but we don't really own anything, right? We, 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 we can't really get anything done because everything that our folks are working on depends on stuff that's being worked on in the US. And so we try to get something done, we get stuck and we can't do anything until someone comes in the next day in the US and we get this sort of 12 hour delay whenever oh. we get stuck. And we spend 12 hours doing, you know, not very productively. I said, okay, that's good feedback. Let me go back. You know, I spent two or three days there talking about my vision of how I wanted to run the team and empowerment and, you know, leadership versus management, that aspect of it. Came back and I got, gathered the naysayers together, the ones that were the most adamant that we needed to get rid of this team. And I said, so I met with them and they said they need equipment. They need equipment there to do testing and verification, debugging and all that stuff. And they said, well, we're not going to give them any equipment because they're useless. I said, so let me understand this. They need equipment to be useful, but you don't want to give them equipment because they're useless. Do you see the circular problem we're <laughs> having here? I said, so I want you guys to go through the labs and gather up all the gear that's not being used. I want us to create it up and send it to Bangalore. And then I want us to change the change the work so that they own something. Six months later, and we had a we had an excellent guy who was putting metrics around everything. Six months later, the team in Bangalore was as productive as the team in the U.S. That's incredible. There's a, an incredible lesson in that, right? So I I never had sort of this level of pushback, right? So, oh, by the way, the other thing I did was I took the three most cynical people and I sent them to India for six weeks. <laughs> they came back with, with they came back with strong friendships. It, it it changed it just changed the dynamic, right? Because I I remember saying to to one of the folks uh, here, I said, you know, what do you what do you think you know of Sanjay, the guy you're working with? He's right next to you, right? Oh, that guy's awesome. He's fantastic. I said, he's here. I said, so what school did Sanjay go to? Oh, he went to IIT, which is Indian Institute of Technology, which is, you know, a school that a lot of MIT graduate students come from. I mean, it's a very well, it's a renowned school. I said, so you, you think the people that are working for us in India are like less intelligent than Sanjay? They went to the same school. They got the same education. They got the same background. Why do you think they're somehow less? Well, you know, they just haven't been very productive. 
yeah, but that's that's a that's that's a structural problem. That's not a people problem, right? And and so you know we we turned it around. I mean, it, it, we turned it around. But but the key the key lessons and there are a couple of lessons in in that, right? One is one is to understand when you're going to set up groups all over the world, how do you empower them to do stuff? Because if if everything is is really intricately tied together, and and I can't make a move until they make a move, till they make a move, right? The the time differences become untenable. I mean, entirely untenable, right? And so that level of ownership is important. It really is. That level of ownership, that ability to execute somewhat independently, not entirely independently, but somewhat independently. But that, that also puts another onus on, on the leadership, right? And that, that onus on leadership is to, to basically look at the product architecturally or products architecturally and understand how do you split them up into functional pieces that can be that can be independently developed, right? How do you define really good interfaces between those pieces, APIs or, or other things, so that when these pieces come together, they, they work, right? And it's interesting that in a company, you often get, people start writing code before they think about architecture, right? I mean, I, I once talked to a pretty advanced agile organization that said, well, we don't really do architecture. The architecture reveals itself over time. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, you know, if you're two people doing it, sitting next to each other, I could see that potentially being the case. But if you're 200 people or a thousand people all working on pieces of a product, right? You need to treat it like those products are coming, almost coming from different companies where you define what the interfaces are. You define what the functionality that needs to be delivered. You take a step back and actually do a little architecture work, right? Understand the modules and how the things come together. You know that you know we we often sort of hear the story. Well, I don't have I don't have time to do it right because I'm in a hurry, but I have time to do it again, right? And 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 so many people do that. They don't do it right the first time, and they end up you know revamping it, trying to fix it, spending years trying to get back to it because they hadn't spent honestly not that much time. That ten or ten percent of the development time or twenty percent of the development time really laying out how this stuff is going to work. And you won't get it 100% right, but you get closer and you create an environment where you can empower teams to do their piece, right? And you can bring them together at different at different points in time to make sure everything's okay. And that, I think from a worldwide perspective, that's really, really important when you have a, a distributed group, especially when it's distributed over many, many time zones that are very far apart. Wow. I, I mean... Structurally, you are uh, completely reimagining company methodologies and changing leadership strategies. And uh, I'm sure the influence on these organizations you've had has been uh, absolutely immense. So with such a such a record of success, what do you think your key ingredient to good leadership is and how can other people emulate that in their own organizations well i mean i that's a, that, that's a hard thing to give one answer to and and the reason i say that is i think there's uh, i think it's 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 a multi-dimensional sort of thing right one is you know when you look at the people who succeed the most the, you know to a great extent either they're doing something that's very small and picks a couple people and you know they can basically do it on their own or they, they recognize uh, 
sort of a few real, really important factors that you need to take into account. One, and I, I think um, uh, one of the Apple folks used to say this, uh, Guy Kawasaki, I think his name was, say, you know, A players hire A players and B players hire C players and C players hire D players. Hire good people. Look for people that are smarter than you. There's a lot of people who don't want to do that. They feel like if they hire people that are smarter than them, somehow, you know, they're going to be threatened, right? And so one of the key, I think, really important factors, and one of the things that sets apart success from failure is your ability to, to, to look at people that are smarter than you and not be threatened by them. Take joy in it, right? I mean, I look at the number of folks who worked for me that went on to become CEOs and CTOs. You know, I mean, I take great pride in the fact that there, I have people who work for me who went on to much bigger things, right? And, and, and I say, well, that's a success. I hired somebody smarter than me. I hired somebody more capable than me, certainly in certain areas, right? We, none of us are skilled in everything. So that's, that's sort of a second piece. Hire people that are smarter than you. Hire people that do the things you can't do. Recognize your weaknesses and fill them with people who have strengths in those areas, right? When I ran the business unit at Juniper, I, I mean, I was a, I'm an engineer, right? I'm a geek. I'm not a business guy. I mean, I've taken finance for engineering and I've, I understand the P&L statement and I understand net present value and I, I work with product managers and I've, I've got good business sense, but I'm not a business guy, right? So here I am, general manager of the high-end high security business unit and I need business people, right? Who are going to do that side of it. So hiring people that complement your skill set is another, I think, really important factor. And uh, some folks see that as a loss of control, right? Oh, if I hire people who, who have great skills in an area I don't, they, they're going to get control of that space and I'll lose it, right? That's just wrong. <laughs> you, you want to have the best capabilities in every area that you can. The, the other thing that... Um, I learned from a book called Winning. And I haven't read, I, I've read a lot of business books. There's not too many that really sort of hit me, but Winning hit me, right? It's written by um, uh, Jack Welch, who ran GE for a while, made it the most valuable company in the world. People are rewriting history now and saying, maybe that's not the case, but whatever. It was the most valuable company in the world. You can't argue with that. It just was. And, and it was there during his tenure. And one of the things that, that, uh, uh, he pushed in winning was, uh, well, there's actually two factors, I would say, in winning. One, one was, he didn't, I don't think he said these, but he said, you know what, but, but he basically lived the idea that I got two ears and one mouth, so I should listen twice as much as I talk, okay? People in, people in the, in the, people know what to do, right? When, when I, when I've, I've gone into a lot of companies where I was the fix-it guy, okay? Come in here, we're waterfall. We have no roadmap. We need to get back on track. We need to create new products. I need to move people to agile. I'm a fix it guy, right? But the fact is, when you go into any organization where stuff is broken, the people there, they know what's broken. They know why it's broken. Right? There's no way that I can spend 30 days and figure it out without talking to people because they had the answer. You go, you listen, right? Jack Welsh gave the example that there was a factory. I, I can't remember. I think it was in Buffalo. It was a long time ago. And, and they were going to shut it down. And none of the management knew what to do to save it. They needed to bring the costs under control. They needed to put quality up. They had a whole bunch of problems. And 
he walked into the factory floor and he talked to the supervisors and he talked to the people on the line. He said, what do we need to do to fix this? And they told him. Not, not as VPs, not as senior directors, you know, not as general managers, but the people on the line said, hey, this is what's wrong. This is what we need to do to fix it. And they saved that factory because the answers were there. You just had to ask the questions and you had to listen to the answers. And people don't do that enough. And I think, especially if you're coming into a new environment, which I've done many times, new environment, new technology, new everything, right? The, the people there are the experts. I mean, okay, oh, give me a couple of years there, I'll become an expert too. But the people there know a lot more about what's going on than I do in many cases. I mean, UC is a bit different because I've kind of, it's kind of been in my blood a long time, but other technologies, right? I mean, when I went into long haul optical business, you know, they were... It was interesting because they knew what they needed to do, but they they were worried it wasn't going to be good enough, and they needed someone to come in and say, "Well, sort of, sort of take the neg the other view, not negative, but the other view. Say, well, here's why it is good enough. I'm an outsider, but look, I look at it and gave them a different perspective, and it made a difference, right? But they knew the answers, right? They just they just needed someone to sort of frame it to basically repeat it back to them a different way. And so this, this whole idea of listening is, is super important. So that was one aspect of, of winning. The other aspect of winning that was super important was the statement that candor accelerates business. Leadership has a really big problem because we're human of telling people what they're doing wrong. We're much, much better at waiting until the end of the year and saying, you failed, you're fired. No, I mean, I, seriously, it, it, it's yeah, sad, it's but it's true, true right? We don't want to tell people, oh, you know, you did you did that wrong or you could fix this or, you know, kind of give them feedback along the way. Right. Because we don't want to tell people negative stuff until the crisis hits and we have to get rid of them. Right. Because because they didn't succeed. Whereas if you'd given them a little advice along the way, if you'd been honest and candid with them along the way, it could have made a huge difference. And, you know, I, I once uh, when I was at Cisco. I once had to go to bat to bring this guy into my group from another group because they wanted to fire him. They, they wanted to fire this guy. And I, I remember having the conversation with people in my group and they said, look, he's super, he's got a tremendous amount of expertise in this core area that we need help in and we need to bring him in. I had to go multiple levels up in the company to get permission to hire him because the company rules were when someone was on a performance improvement plan, you couldn't transfer them to another group. Right. I mean, fair enough. I mean, it's fair yeah, to have it rules like sense. that. It all, it all makes sense. Right. But, but this guy was different. And my folks convinced me he was different. And, you know, you build a team, you trust your people. You don't, you know, you listen. Right. And so went up the levels and got permission, brought him into the group. He went on to become a distinguished engineer at Cisco. A guy who was on his way out the door became a distinguished engineer at Cisco. And, and all he needed was feedback. Regular feedback, because we knew we were getting a guy who was on a performance improvement plan. We knew he needed coaching. We knew that. And, but we wanted him because, for his expertise, and we were willing to do that. Myself, you know, and people on my team, we coached him. And he went from being the performance improvement plan problem to being one of the lead engineers in the company. That can happen. That's candor. That, that's the value of timely and honest feedback on an ongoing basis. If you had to sum up 
uh, coaching and mentorship in three words, what would it be? For me, I think that I've heard from you, perspective is a huge uh, portion of, uh, you know, building a team and, and understanding and, and really working together with others. And I would say that uh, another one is understanding. Uh, you really take the time to understand uh, what's going on inside of a business, inside of a team, inside of people's heads who are in the in that uh, workforce or space that you're trying to fix. Uh, and I think the, the third one uh, is creativity. You definitely have uh, an incredibly innovative mind and to be able to uh, move from one thing to the other while staying empathetic uh, is, is mind blowing to me. What, uh, what would you say for yourself? I, I, I mean, I think you did a pretty good job. <laughs> you captured it pretty well. I, I especially like the word, the fact you added the word empathetic at the end, because I didn't say anything about being empathetic. Uh, the fact that you read that in what I said is, is, uh, kind of a victory to me because, because a lot of leaders are not empathetic, right? And empathy is a, is an interesting it's, a, it's an interesting uh, character trait. It's an interesting part of, of people's character um, because a lot of people think that empathy and sympathy are the same thing and they're not, okay? Em empathy is, is not feeling sorry for somebody. It's understanding where they're coming from, right? It's understanding what makes them tick. It under it's understanding, you know, putting your, it's, it's walking a mile in their shoes, right? That's what empathy is. It's, it's got nothing to do with sympathy. And if you understand or, or at least endeavor to understand where people are coming from, uh, good things can happen, right? You, can, you, you find the right way to uh, incent people, right? To, to make them excited about what they do. By the way, I mean, it, it also leads to some people not being the right people for your team, right? I mean, it, this is, it's not all, it's, 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 it's not all, you know, light here. Sometimes understanding where somebody was coming from is understanding they're not going to work out in your team either. And building a good team isn't just about making everybody happy. It's about making sure that the team has the dynamics and the chemistry and the other things it needs to be successful in addition to the right skill sets. And so, you know, some, sometimes being empathetic is asking somebody or, 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 or having that discussion with someone that says, you know, this is not going to be what you want. We're, we're not going to be able to become what you'd like us to be here. And those are the worst conversations. And those are hard conversations, right? No one ever has likes to do that. No one. But the fact is, if you want to build a successful team, you know, you, ha you have to make sure that all of, the, all of the different pieces fit together and execute together well. And, and some people don't always fit in that. And so empathy isn't just about understanding where someone's coming from it's also having a feeling for whether or not they're going to work out from a broader team perspective right and 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 that you know i still remember the first time i had to have that conversation with somebody it, it was awful and and i've had conversations like that for all my career and it's still awful i mean it never it never, it never gets, gets better easier. it never gets easier it's it, because you know we're all human beings right and and Empathy means, you know, you sort of get a feel that you know what they're going to feel from it, but it's, it's not going to be, you know, an uplifting experience. But 
but you know, we're, we're, we're in this together to be successful and sometimes not everybody fits that. Right. And so I think that there's, there's an important aspect to that, but, but, you know, I, I think, like you say, I mean, yes, I'm creative. I mean, it's also true though, that uh, skills are transferable and sometimes bringing a different perspective is what makes something, you know, just having someone come in with a different, that's what happened in the optical team, the, the optical transport company, right? I'd done no optical transport. I brought in a very different perspective and it was good for the company because it was, because people get caught up in their own world, right? And, and, and they let their world to some extent get a little more narrow and bringing somebody in from the outside broadens that perspective again. But, uh, and, and so sometimes it, you know, it looks like creativity, but it's like, no, it's just something I did before. And I think it'll work here right? <laughs> you know? because the same, the same formula often works over and over again. If, if you have, if you have this, the sort of this view of sort of, I, I go back to what I said, there's sort of three dimensions, right? That you're going to solve a problem, that the tech's going to get there, that you have the people that you need. Those things are so important. Thank you, Michael, for essentially uh, teaching myself and my listeners how to lead with empathy. So thank you for coming on the show. And uh, we we would really love to have you as a guest soon again. <laughs>